wonderful worship music this morning. There's, there's so many things as, we, as you listen to those words that tie into the message today of the least likely person. Um, good morning. Uh, it's really good to be here with you and continue worship this morning. I, again, I'd like to welcome those who are joining on live stream. It's really good that you could join us. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Randy Trigger. I'm uh, on the teaching team here at Lakeside and also on the Pastor Elder Board. This morning, we're going to switch our focus in this series from Elijah to Esther. As Lydia and Aaron highlighted in the introduction to the service, uh, to this series, uh, there's a lot of similarities between these two people of the Old Testament. Uh, one of them is that they're both just ordinary people. Elijah is a man from a rather obscure small town, and we'll see that uh, Esther is a Jewish orphan girl living in a foreign, large foreign city. And while the way that God works in each of their lives is completely different, we can see clearly that he is in charge of everything and that um, he has control of everything. Where God is front and center throughout the life of Elijah, he's not even mentioned in the book of Esther. God spoke directly to Elijah. He told him uh, where to go, what to say, and what to do. But in Esther, we see God working through choices freely made by people, both people that are for him and those that would seek to destroy his people. In many ways, the story of Esther is an encouragement to me. It reminds me that God is in control even when he's silent. When everything seems to be going wrong, when I feel powerless and insignificant, everything's crazy, God is there. One of the common themes that we'll see as we work through the book of Esther is how God is always working in the background. How many times do we attribute unusual occurrences to luck or coincidence? And there's a lot of those. As you look at Esther, there's a lot of them all the way through the book. But at some point, if we're honest, the probability of all of those lining up just right gets too high. As C.S. Lewis has said, we may ignore but nowhere, ev- can, but nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere, incognito. Just consider the last two and a half years. It seems like everything is shaking. The world is shaking culturally, economically, politically, even religiously. And yet, through it all, we continue to worship him. We continue to remain faithful and committed to following him, regardless of all the stuff that's happening around us. Our gathering here this morning is a testament to our faith and belief that God is in control, that he and only he is worthy. God uses everything that's happening uh, to accomplish his will and purpose. We spent all of last fall in a study called The Epic Plan. In it, we went from creation all the way to the birth of his son, Jesus, and we saw God working through that entire thing. And we as followers of Christ have the same assurance that God is in control as we read Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice that it's all things. That small word carries a huge truth and which is our big idea for this morning. Regardless of the choices that people make or the cultural background, God is in control. So let's start by setting the stage. 
It's about 464 BC, about 400 years have passed since the time of Elijah. Both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel have fallen to conquerors, and the Jewish people have been sent into exile. In fact, the 70 years have passed, and now some of the exiles are starting to return to Jerusalem to rebuild both the city and the temple. But we know that some of the exiles have chosen to stay where they're at and continue living. The land of the Israelites is now under the control of the Persian Empire. Uh, as one of its 127 provinces that stretch from modern-day uh, India all the way to Ethiopia. It's huge. Let me introduce you to a few of the people that we're going to be seeing in the first couple chapters. Persia is ruled by King Ahasuerus. Some, Bible tra some Bibles translate that Xerxes, but it's the same man. And although he has power, historians paint him as a prideful, self-centered, and insecure ruler. We'll, uh, we'll see that he shows poor leadership and decision-making ability all the way through the book. He seems more interested in uh, showing off in his public image than of actually ruling. In the first nine verses of the book, we're told of two separate parties, one that lasted for 180 days, six months, and that had a follow-up of only one week, a small one. The first was probably focused on gaining support for his planned attack against Greece. The second one was probably a thank you to the city of uh, Susa for hosting it. Ahasuerus is married to Vashti as queen. And chapter one tells us that Vashti held a separate party for the women of Susa while the other ones were going on. It shows us that women truly were considered a part and inferior to men at this point in history. Okay, that's Ahasuerus. Now we move on to Mordecai. Unlike Elijah, uh, Mordecai has a rather impressive resume. And we see in Esther that he is a man of some influence and power. He's a leader. Uh, this is how he's in introduced to us in Esther chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And there's a lot of carried away there. His lineage includes close relatives of Saul, the first king of Israel. And his family was part of the group that was uh, carried away with uh, Jeconiah, king of Judah. The Babylonians would take into exile the creme de la creme of leadership. They would take the powerful, the educated, and the talented back to their capital, and they would reintegrate them into their society. Then they would take their people and put them in charge of the conquered land, and they'd leave the poor people there to work the land and pay the taxes. So his family credentials are impressive. In addition, Esther 2.21 mentions that he was sitting at the gate of the king. The gates of the city is where the official business was conducted. So Mordecai sitting at the gate meant that he was a man of, uh, who was respected and he was a leader. He's also a compassionate and giving man. He's a single, respected, busy man who takes on the responsibility of raising a younger cousin, an orphan girl. As a father of an only girl, I can tip my hat to him. And he did it without the wisdom and guidance of a wife. As we read Esther, we find that he was involved in her life. And as we look, we can see that it's obvious that they had a lot of respect for each other. 
One thing that I find interesting, we'll touch on a little bit, is his insistence that she keep her religious background a secret. Speaking of Esther, we get to the final person, our main person. As I mentioned, she's an orphan being raised by an older cousin. The title of this message is The Least Likely Person. Perhaps you're beginning to get an idea why Esther is the least likely person. She's a woman living in a male-dominated society where women are considered just showpieces. Second, she's a foreigner both in ancestry and in religion. And third, she's an orphan. What are the chances of God using her? Here's her introduction in Esther 2.7. Mordecai was bringing up Hadessa, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Okay, so as we begin, it seems that the only thing that Esther has going for her is she has a beautiful figure and she's lovely to look at. But as we work our way through the series, we're going to find out that there's much more than just a pretty face. We'll see that she has characteristics like patience, courage, faith, humility, and intellect. So now we've met some of the people involved in the book of Esther. And we can move on to the story itself. The book tells the background um, story of the Jewish holiday that we know of as Purim. Today we're going to cover the first two chapters of Esther. The two chapters are used to introduce the setting and to set the stage for the rest of the story. The first chapter is completely about King Ahasuerus. And the second chapter is where we get to meet Mordecai and Esther and we begin the story uh, of their lives there. We've all been through difficult times where nothing seemed to make sense. But after we've gone through, we can look back and, and we can reflect on it. We can see little things that at the time didn't seem important were actually critical. As people of faith, we can see these as the hand of God at work. At the end of my senior year in college, I interviewed for and was offered a position with Texas Instruments in Louisville, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. I was torn at the time of whether to accept it because on the one hand, I didn't want to leave Michigan and my family behind. On the other hand, I didn't have any other job offers. I had 30 days to decide and I kept going back and forth. I'd call to accept the job and my contact wouldn't pick up the phone, didn't answer. And then I changed my mind to decline it, but fear of shutting the door and stopping it kept me from acting on it. I went back and forth. I tried three separate times to call and accept the job. And every one of those times, nobody picked up the phone. This is before email, texting, instant messaging. It's even before answering machines. I'm aging myself. Yeah, wow. Finally, on the last day, I had to make a decision. I decided to decline the job. I called, picked up the phone on the first ring. In less than 30 seconds, it was over. And that leads to our first application question. Looking back on your life, when have you seen where coincidences were really the hand, God's hand at work? For me, looking back, I can see multiple times where God was working. And I didn't know it at the time until I looked back. Like, even before I knew him, when my contact not being there, whenever I called to accept the job. God didn't want that for me. Closed the door. God's control isn't limited to big displays like Elijah's calling down fire. 
Esther is really the story of God remaining anonymous and controlling everything from the big to the insignificant. As we go through the series, we're going to find that seemingly insignificant things have incredible consequences. Everything from a drunken command to a sleepless night. Some people call this luck or coincidence, but each and every one of them lines up together to get an extraordinary result. As our big idea says, regardless of the choices that people make or cultural background, God is in control. As I mentioned, um, the first nine verses of Esther talk about two separate parties. And that leads me to my first example of God working in a unique way with an unlikely person. Let's read Esther chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs, who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princess her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So Ahasuerus has been partying for seven days after just finishing a six-month-long party. The contrast in emotions from a merry heart to burning anger is really a good snapshot of him. Here he is partying with all the men of Susa while Queen Vashti is holding her own party when suddenly he decides to show off his prize, Queen Vashti. So he sends seven men to go and fetch her. What is he thinking? I guess the point is he's not. It never occurred to him that Vashti, what Vashti might be thinking or that how she might respond to his request. He didn't know her. It's clear that his sole purpose was to show off her off as his beautiful prize. The fact that he gets angry when she wisely declines shows that he really doesn't know her. This seems like an ordinary, arbitrary incident, but in retrospect, it's critical to the rest of the story and the rise of Esther. I'll get to that in just a moment. Let's be clear. God didn't get Ahasuerus drunk and force him to make the demand of, of um, Vashti. God knew him and used the situation to accomplish his goal. Don't, please don't go trying to figure out the reasons for God. While I can't give you the reasons, I can see God's hand in it. The only thing we know of Vashti is that she refused the king's command. From today's perspective, it's exactly the right decision. Way to go, Vashti. Ah, but in 400 BC, uh, Persia, yeah, the call is risky with uh, consequences that range from bad to deadly. The rest of chapter 1 tells a story of Ahasuerus and his wise counselors trying to figure out how uh, to handle Queen Vashti's rebellion. It starts out okay with Ahasuerus asking for legal advice. Esther 1.15 According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. I think a more grounded man might have uh, tried to reconsider the circumstances and smooth things out. Instead, he goes directly to a legal way to try to get even with her. The answer he receives is both illuminating 
and honestly, it's, it's humorous, because apparently there is not a law that covers when the queen de- denies the king's command. They didn't cite it. Instead, they wisely paint a picture of how Queen Vashti's refusal is going to spread throughout the kingdom to all the women, and all the women are going to do the same thing. Oh, we can't have that. That would be rebellion. This is obviously a strike against their pride, and it must be dealt with accordingly. So they propose a solution. Let's write a law, since one doesn't exist. I'm not sure of the final legalese, but verse 19 says it this way. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Talk about a specific law. (laughs) What actually gets put in place, we're not sure, but it's broader than that because we see in verse 22, the last verse of chapter 1, he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So the law is written and sent out. We've gone from drunken merriment to ill-advised command, to perceived rebellion, and we've landed on satisfaction? Uh, Not quite, as we continue with the contest to become queen. We don't see it in the text, but historians tell us that after those two parties, um, King Ahasuerus led his army on a failed conquest of Greece. So there's probably several years that have passed between the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter one. Let's look at Esther uh, chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of the king Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. It seems that a cooler head might have done things differently. A good leader never makes a decision in the heat of the moment, and certainly wise counselors would have urged more restraint. But they had urged him to not only banish her, but to make it irrevocable. Now he isn't happy, and his attendants know it. Let's read the next three verses, two through four of Esther. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. In order to find someone better than Vashti, the order is to find someone better than Vashti. And while the stated qualifications are all about looks, God had a better idea. He wanted to bring Esther to the threshold of being queen of Persia. I mentioned before that seemingly insignificant command had consequences, and they were good, because God used it to open the way for Esther to become queen. If you know the story of Daniel from the book of Daniel, then you'll see a similarity. Daniel 1, verses 3 through 5. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, 
of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. In both cases, God used the ways of Gentiles to accomplish his um, purpose. Both Daniel and Esther matched the requirements, but each of them was much more than they had intended. Daniel was certainly more than the equivalent of a big man on campus. And as we'll see, uh, as we move through the series, Esther is more than a pretty face. I'd like to point something out to you. Both Daniel and Esther had a good reputation and character with unbelievers. God used these to help them win favor in the eyes of the unbelievers. This gives a good application question. What's your reputation with unbelievers? Does it help or hinder your ability to share God's love with them? Don't fret if you've messed up, if you don't think you have a good one. Just confess it to God. Ask him to forgive you and help you change your path. And remember, God uses our biggest failings to accomplish his purpose. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's see how God works to promote the least likely person. Let's read Esther chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her, her and her young women to the best place in the harem. It's not clear from the text what input Mordecai and Esther had in her selection. But again, in retrospect, we can see that it was um, clearly God's choice to accomplish his plan and his purpose. The verses begin to immediately um, tell us, show us more of the depth of Esther's character. Esther is one of many just another pretty face among a throng of pretty faces. I'm guessing that every single young woman there was all in on becoming queen, every one of them. I think this is a beauty pageant on major league steroids. And here is Esther, winning the favor of the one in charge. He saw qualities in Esther that set her above and apart from the competition. See, Haggai knew something of what it was going to be, what it was going to take for her to be queen. And he begins to actively work to advance her and to help her. He believes that Esther should be queen, that Ahasuerus will select. And while this is probable, we can't rule out the hand of God. Again, he has the ability to change Haggai's heart and mind. I'm not taking anything away from Esther but I'm also not taking anything away from God. He did a similar thing with Daniel. We'll see this in uh, Daniel uh, chapter 1, verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. God did it. He is able to take the least likely per person and accomplish extraordinary things. 
as our big idea says, regardless of the choices that people make or cultural background, God is in control. I've stated that big idea several times, and that leads, I'd like to ask you this question. Do you believe that despite the choices people make or their cultural background, that God is truly in control? Do you believe that? Take a moment and ponder the implications to your life if you lived it believing that God was 100% in control no matter what. Of course, the only one that could really do that was Jesus. He says so in John chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So Esther is listening to Haggai as he gives her good advice. In doing so, she continues to move to the top and distance herself from the other young women. There's another piece of counsel which Mordecai gave to Esther, and I touched on this earlier. Esther 2, verses 10 and 11. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. We aren't told why he commands her not to reveal it. But it's mentioned several times, so it's clearly important, especially to Mordecai, who is very wise to the way of the court. I guess that shows us really is that Esther is uh, good at listening to wise counsel. I sat down with my college counselors to lay out a path for a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science. Along with the required courses, he listed a bunch that were just recommended. And among those was a course in technical writing. At the time, I was already required to take a supplemental English class, and the technical writing was not one of the options. At first glance, I couldn't see why he had recommended it. But I listened to his wise advice, his counsel, and I took the course my senior year, and what great advice it was. The technical writing class taught me everything from how to write a resume and cover letter to writing a business um, proposal. At the time, I was already taking a bunch of uh, uh, technical courses, computer science and math. And I'll tell you, I've often said that that technical writing class was one of the five top classes that I took. It had that kind of an impact on me. It was really good advice. One of the things that I find wonderful reading about people in the Bible is that they're all human. Esther and Mordecai are just human. Each is unique and has strengths and weaknesses. And many times these weaknesses are written into God's word for eternity. But he didn't put them there to embarrass those people. It's there to help us to know more about our incredible God. It shows his grace, his mercy, his wisdom, and his care, especially for those of his children. Every single person, beginning with Adam and Eve, to each and every one of us sitting here this morning, have strengths and weaknesses. And God knows them completely. God knows me better than I know myself. I want to ask you this application question. Have you ever felt like the least likely person? Like God isn't working in your life? 
Maybe you feel too young, too old. Maybe you're stuck in a dead-end job. Or worse, you're unemployed. Things in your life seem to go from bad to worse, and your future plans, man, they're just not working out. Maybe you feel like you've done something that disqualifies you from having happiness in life. I read about people in the Bible, and I can find these examples in people all the way through, whether it's written or implied. And yet, in no case does God stop loving that person because it's impossible for God to not love. You see, he is love. It's part of his very essence. Are you listening to this message and feeling a bit like the least likely person? Well, welcome to humanity. You see, in all honesty, every single person is the least likely. Those great people in the Bible, they're just human beings. They're people like you and me. The only difference is God chose to include them by his will in the pages of his word. I'd like to read a description of the least likely person from Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The writers of the New Testament tell us that this is written concerning Jesus. God chose to send Jesus to us as a baby. He was born in humble circumstances and poor. We can see that there wasn't anything special about him from a human perspective, yet he was the son of God who became the son of man. Look carefully. Even when we despise or don't esteem him, he still carries our grief and our sorrows. Can you see how very much he loves you? The description of his death is graphic and accurate. To be crucified as he was for us is to collapse or crush the chest cavity, making every breath a struggle. That's for our iniquity. He was pierced in the side through the heart to ensure that he was dead. And that was for our transgressions. His chastisement brings us peace and his wounds bring us healing. In the last part of verse six, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Would you take just a moment, bow your head, close your eyes, please. Consider, God loves you so much that Jesus took all of our failures and weaknesses and in return offers us an adoption into God's family as a son or daughter of our heavenly father and a brother or sister of Jesus. 
The offer's there, but he won't force it on you. All you need to do is confess your need for Jesus and accept his gift as full payment. That's it. If you haven't accepted his gift, then please take just a moment and do it now. The idea that God isn't working in your life is a lie because he loves you, and his love is powerful. Remember that Romans 8.28 verse, to paraphrase, God is working all things for those who love him. You can open your eyes. Back to the story. After one year of primping and pampering, we come to the judging, and there's a single judge for this one, King Ahasuerus. The rules are simple, and they're laid out in verses 12 through 14. I'll give you a synopsis. Each young woman was to spend one night with the king. She could take anything that she wanted from the harem in the king's palace with her. After spending the night, she was to leave his presence and go into a second harem of concubines. She was never again to come into his presence unless he called for her by name. Eventually, it became Esther's turn. And again, we see Esther's character in God's hand. Esther 2.15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, um, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Esther shows humility as she continues to listen to Haggai's wise wisdom. And God is allowing her to have favor in the eyes of all who see her. God is in control of all these seemingly small details. We can see this in Proverbs 21.1. I love this, this verse. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is directing the path so that Esther is the only obvious choice for queen. There really isn't any, content, there really isn't any uh, suspense for us now because we know how the result is. But can you imagine the tension, what was going on in their minds while this was occurring? And even though they had no idea, God did. He was in complete control. Regardless of the choices that people make or their cultural background, God is in control. Esther 2.17. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in the sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Esther did much more than win the contest by being better than Vashti. She won the heart of Ahasuerus. This is important because it opens the door for her later in the story. He didn't even finish the contest. She had won his heart. It's not your usual love story, but there it is. He immediately sets the royal crown on her head and names her queen. You'll never guess what he did next. Yep, he threw a party, a real big one. He called it Esther's Feast. Then he granted a remission of taxes and he gave gifts to everybody. God's not mentioned, but his hand can clearly be seen throughout this, this start and throughout the book. And if I will look, his hand can clearly be seen in my life and in yours. Here's a quote from Dave Reed that will encourage us. 
Have you ever felt discouraged as though God was not working in your life? Recognize that, as in the book of Esther, even when God's work is not evident, he is working behind the scenes. Esther started as the least likely person and became queen. But it's just the start of the story. Before I wrap up, let's go back and remember some of our application questions. Looking back on your life, when have you seen where coincidences were really God's hand at work? How can this recognition help you when you're facing difficult circumstances now? I personally find that it reminds me that God's plan and purpose is much larger than I can begin to imagine. And if I'm willing to draw near to God at these times, I can feel his peace and comfort. It's always been there for me. Next, what's your reputation with unbelievers? Does it help or hinder your ability to share God's love with them? Do you exhibit the characteristics of Jesus? Are you loving, humble, a servant leader, and forgiving? I found that it's much easier to share Jesus with people if they can see him working in my life. The same is true for everyone. And finally, have you ever felt like the least likely person, like God isn't working in your life? Don't believe the lie that God's forgotten you. Just read 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became uh, to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus will provide everything that you'll ever need, and more. He'll walk with you through every circumstances, no matter how high or low. He'll be there with you always. All you have to do is ask. There's one small part, more small part of chapter two, and if this were a movie, it would be the addition of a suspenseful subplot. What could be more suspenseful than the foiling of an assassination plan? Esther 2, 21 to 23a. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. Mordecai comes to know of a planned assassination, and he informs Esther. Esther passes on the knowledge to Ahasuerus and notifies him that the information came from Mordecai. God is working in a way to bring the assassination attempt to Mordecai's attention. Why is this important? I didn't show the last part of verse 23, and I'd love to read it. You can imagine suspenseful music in the background, okay? Esther 2.23b, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Hmm. It seems like the setup to a future installment, and it is. (laughs) 
It comes into play in two weeks when Steve will give us a message titled The Big Reveal. But first, uh, we'll get more of the story next week from Nate. Uh, he'll be t- preaching a, title f- uh, a sermon titled For Such a Time as This. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you take the least and you work your ways to accomplish your goals. Father, it, everything in this world to us uh, should be seen as upside down. Father, you take the least to make it the largest. You, you tell us the first will be last, the last will be first. Father, we thank and praise you, and we ask that you help us to know the truth and draw into you that no matter what's happening in our world, what's happening in our lives, what's happening in our communities, Father, you are in control, even when we can't see you. You love us. Father, I pray that you would touch our hearts and help us to walk forth with a boldness to, to live our lives remembering that you're there with us and for us. We thank you for this time. We ask that you bless the rest of this day. And we thank you and praise you for your son, Jesus, and his leading. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.